All right, everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, and I'm really excited to tell you guys that I've got a special guest returning to the podcast. We have Mr. Michael McAfee from Museum of the Bible, and uh, we've got some exciting news. You have a book coming out in the next couple of months, so yes, uh, we want to talk about the book. We want to talk about uh, kind of the things that you've been researching and, and thinking about, and the first thing I want to ask you is, so the book is called Not What You Think. Mm-hmm. And where did this come from? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for, for having me back. I love the podcast. I'm a regular listener, and so it's an honor to get to be on. Yeah, we're um, glad to have you back, man. Yeah. The, the, so for the last several years, um, especially 2014 to 2017, my wife Lauren and I were kind of heading up this awareness tour for Museum of the Bible. And so we're traveling around the country um, I, and I, I literally mean, uh, I think I counted at one point, it was 44 states, you know, that we're just going to trying to tell people about this museum that's opening that's dedicated to the Bible. And it's an odd thing because you have this ancient book in this modern world that we are um, reintroducing. And so as we're talking and sharing about our passion for the Bible and our passion for the museum, we had a lot of conversations with fellow millennials and Gen Z and young adults in general um, that had questions or concerns about the Bible and a whole lot of conversation as well with their parents or pastors and um, that they wanted to know, hey, how can we sort of reintroduce the Bible to the modern world, um, to the young adults today? And so this was our attempt to say, man, we can't go around and have a cup of coffee with everyone like we wish we could. And so we at least wanted to try and capture what are the obstacles that people have today as they come to the Bible? And uh, is there a way for us as fellow young adults to make an appeal um, to say, hey, we understand and are sympathetic to the obstacles and hurdles that you have for the Bible, but we still find that it's worth engaging with, that it's worth reading. And, um, and here are some things at least to think about and consider why the Bible might be not what you think it is, uh, why you might bring right. kind of preloaded these, um, these false perceptions of what the Bible is or this baggage of ways that you've been wronged by people to the text. And if we can set those aside and look at the Bible anew, you might find, um, be surprised to find that the things you've been searching for are actually located within this book. I love that framework because one of the things that has been really interesting over the last year or so. And, and on the last podcast episode that you and I had, we talked about, you know, what is the state of the Bible? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think the statistics kind of bear out, and I, I'm thinking especially of Ligonier's state of theology study last year, is Christians on the whole really have no idea what they believe. I mean, the statistics as wow. far as like what evangelicals think about theology is in some ways really encouraging. Like 90% of people believe that there's a trinity. 90% of people believe that you're saved by faith. But 55 or so percent of people think that Jesus was the first created being. Right. I mean, so right, you look right. at that and you're just like, okay, there's there's just not a cohesive awareness of what Christians believe. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think has been really encouraging, though, in the statistics is people are more open to faith, to spirituality, to finding more than just what they've experienced so far, especially among the young adult population of people. That, you know, one of the stats we looked up when I was running a college ministry was 80% of people would come to church if they were invited. 80% of people would come wow. if they were invited. There's an openness among people that are, you know, 18 to 30 yeah. to engage with the church. They probably don't know exactly what 
Christianity is all about. They have some cultural narratives or they could have had a bad experience in the past. They could have had a great experience in the past and it just didn't stick. But there's an openness to it. Mm -hmm. And so what I love about this framework is so if you could sit down with somebody in that category, they're not Christian they probably didn't grow up in the church, or if they did, didn't take their faith seriously at all, but they're open to considering it. What do you say to a person like that? Yeah, I, I think one of the places I at least want to start is by having a conversation about truth itself. Mm. One of the reasons why they're so open to religion is because they're open to everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because they haven't nailed down um, any solid beliefs on truth. And so... I, I would want to at least kind of start there and talk about the problem that we have with truth and talk about uh, why it is that we have kind of a, a, a gag reflex or repulsion to saying something is dogmatically true um, mm. because um, we all bring our own subjective um, perceptions into anything that we look at. And so um, that in itself can be an obstacle when someone then comes to the Bible, especially because they view the Bible as... Uh, as authoritative and kind of one of the things that we found is not only from personal experience, but research, this was really interesting, was that when you start asking people, okay, what what is your problem that you have with the Bible? Uh-huh. Over and over again, the first thing people start referencing are people, are hmm. people and experiences that they've had or a person that they know that claims to be an authority on the Bible. And you try and just point it back to, no, no, no okay, that's fine. Let's, I just want to know about your problem with the text. And, uh, and again, it was always either experiences with people or perceptions that they received, not from reading it themselves, but from culture. Um, the kind of, this book doesn't fit into a modern way of thinking. And the book says you can't eat shellfish and other things that just kind of, you know, and immediately dismiss it without engaging with the Bible themselves. And so, so that's at least a starting place. And I want to come at it I think one of the things we try and do in this book and why we felt like it was worth writing is because we're not an authority figure. We are just a peer. And so we're not coming at this book or this conversation to say, hey, this is what um, this is how the Bible was canonized and why you should trust the canonization process or the um, some of the textual criticism arguments or things like that. We're simply saying that, hey, as a peer, this is something you might not have considered. So Mm -hmm. you might not have considered that uh, compared to any other book idea or philosophy, the Bible has endured for thousands of years. And so we're often slaves to the modern, to the new, thinking the new is best or greatest. Right. But the Bible's significance is because it's timeless. Yeah, there's a grasp for authority even in the midst of a culture that doesn't like authority. Like right. if you look at the way that people behave, I, I, I especially see this in, you know, my age group of people that I know that I went to college with, that I've worked, you know, around in young adult groups and that kind of thing. You want something authoritative, right. but you want to find it. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to be imposed on you. You don't want anybody to tell you what is true for everybody because we live in this age of expressivism so that your identity yes. is mainly constructed by the way that you express yourself. Right. And the worst thing for expressivism is a one-size-fits-all authoritative right. standard that's 3,000 years old. Like that, there's nothing <laughs> worse than that. Exactly. But if you look at it, part of what I think is so appealing about things like identity politics, or you know, cause-driven um, 
you know, they say the millennials are the most cause driven generation that's ever existed, probably until the next generation, they'll be more cause driven than us. But you know, the rise of causes, just being about something bigger than yourself. One of the reasons I think that is so appealing is it gives you that sense of having an identity that you can express, Mm -hmm. but it also gives you a sense of authority because other people are in this with you. Right. You know, other people are supporting that cause. Right. So if, if that's the place we find ourselves is we don't like authority that's imposed, but we're desperately longing for this sense of belonging and the authority that comes with being a part of a movement or something like that, the Bible becomes a really viable option. Right. Yeah. And so I'd like to hear what you think some of the biggest hurdles are for somebody who's thinking about um, you know, because we don't consciously think like, oh, I need a source of authority. How about I try the Bible? But for somebody right. that's just feeling a little bit lost, a little bit unsettled, they feel like they're not square on the ground. What are some of the obstacles you have to work through when it comes to faith, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the Bible? I think that there's there's several. I think that one point is, and, and you were, um, you have your finger right on it, that we want to address in the book is that idea of group think that um, it seems so second nature to young adults today, but having the ability and um, the access to go on to Yelp and to mm-hmm. um, take as kind of authority, not what a, you know, official restaurant reviewer says is great or disgusting about a restaurant, but just to say, well, if the general populace likes this place and gives it five stars, it must be fantastic. And so um, we've ended up at trying to get Indian food at what ended up being a gas station. And clearly Yelp led us astray. Uh-huh. But we even ordered it because it was like, well, there's these great Yelp reviews. It yeah. must be. There's so much solidarity. It's it, got to be good. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, kind of a blind trust to the populace must know mm-hmm. what is right, what is best. And so. I think that that's the challenge for um, something like the ancient scriptures is you you do have this book that the perception is it's old and we've sort of progressed beyond it. And so um, trying to show that it does have this timeless wisdom, uh, one thing we want to show is how it has impacted um, our society so much so that we can't imagine, literally can't imagine our world uh, without the Bible. One of the quotes we include in there is, Theodore Roosevelt, who says that almost exactly, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, but that it would be impossible to imagine our world without the Bible. So we look at briefly in, in a chapter on the impact of the Bible on human rights um, mm. and the Bible's impact on us viewing human rights that uh, you look at even things like religious freedom, to have the freedom to believe or disbelieve as you see fit. Um, that is a that is a controversial, countercultural idea in Governments that are established with countries that, you know, if you look at other religions like Islamic nations or atheistic nations that don't allow Mm -hmm. any kind of freedom of religion. And so uh, a lot of the freedoms and ideals are talked about in the Bible. And so that's what I want to at least start with is, hey, some of the things that you already believe are true are found in the scripture. You care about refugees. The Bible talks about that and has care for that. You care about the poor. Man, the Bible... Mm -hmm talks about the poor a ton. You care about all these things that you care about um, deep down in their most uh, glorified or purified positions. 
the Bible cares about, um, even the goodness of sexual relationships. Now, yeah. different than the world's perspective, but the Bible speaks well of sex. God invented it. And so uh-huh. I want to start that conversation by showing, hey, this book values and cares and even has like guidelines for experiencing and enjoying the life that you want the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And the things that it's saying as an authority that it's guarding you from are not because it's trying to squelch your fun, but actually because it wants to lead you into everlasting joy. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a pretty amazing route to take. And, and it's insightful because what you're assuming there, if I'm hearing you right, is we as human beings have been wired a certain way and we long for certain things. We have a drive for certain things. We have this kind of unrest until we find certain things. And one of the things that the Bible does is it tells us what those longings are actually pointing to. Mm-hmm. And so whereas the cause that you might be advocating or you know, the, the, the tribe that you feel like you belong to, they fulfill those desires to an extent mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time yeah. to, a, you know, to a certain level they they satisfy, they placate those desires. But what I hear you saying is one of the best approaches to introduce people to the Bible is to show them that actually the the best way to satisfy the longings that you have, that, that something where you're like, I know this is right, but I can't quite put my finger on it, right. is by being exposed to the Bible. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I think is helpful is by starting there with them because we are individualistic and starting there, but kind of leading them to show if ultimately your desire for sex terminates on sex, if your desire for money terminates on money, whatever it is, significance, um, that you're, you aren't going to find that rest. Um, mm-hmm. you know, was it Augustine that said our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee? Yeah. So that's what we're wanting to do is show, um, Break first those cultural perceptions to say, hey, you have this this view of Scripture that probably you didn't get from reading it yourself, but from others telling you it's oppressive towards women and it's oppressive towards mm-hmm. um, others. And if you actually read the Scripture, it is, it is very honoring towards yeah. a lot of these people. And there's obvious, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it's just simple. It was written in a different time and there is interpretive helps that you need and things like that to understand the meaning. I'm not trying to say that it's simple or easy to read and that you can just pick it up and read it like you would Harry Potter. But what we do want to say is that you need to come to the text and accept the rules of the text the way that it's written, accept uh-huh. what the Bible was intended to say. And so, yeah. so I can't read Harry Potter and judge Harry for uh, for using his magical powers to, you uh-huh. know, stupefy Malfoy or whatever it is and say, like, well, that's immoral. Well, you have to enter the story and accept right. the terms of the story on itself, that I'm entering a story where magic is real, where wands can do spells and uh-huh. where you can fly on a broom. And so the same is true when you come to the Bible, that you have to accept the rules of the Bible for what it is and say, okay, I may have a problem with miracles, for instance, mm-hmm. um, but let me set that aside and say, I, I have this issue, and I, but I'm going to at least enter the story of the Bible and judge it from within and not sort of bring my cultural perceptions to judge the Bible, um, but rather engage with it on its own terms. Right. You know, one of the impulses that I have, um, and when I think about this book is you're really trying to come alongside believers and speak to non-believers. So by speaking to non-believers, one of the things you're also doing is saying, Hey, here's some guidance. If you, if you find yourself in a conversation, maybe here's some things to try. Here's right. here, it's an equipping tool just as much as it is a tool that's reaching out to people that 
aren't Christians. And I know one of my hesitations a lot of times with the Bible is I just have it in my head that a non-believer isn't going to like it from the Mm get-go. And I think one of the temptations for Christians is to be like, well, they're not going to like it anyway. And so basically that leaves me with the option of trying to give the Bible like a facelift and just put its best foot forward and, you know, try and maybe just let them kind of get the good parts. And then later maybe they, you know, get into the heavy stuff or you just kind of write it off altogether and you're like, well, you know what? The gospel is offensive. So, mm-hmm. and, and if, and if they can't handle that, then they're not ready or something. Neither of those are really very good mindsets to go into sharing either the gospel or just inviting somebody into a conversation. Whereas the Bible is capable of overcoming both of those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love the quote by Spurgeon where he says, you don't have to defend the Bible. Mm-hmm. Just like you don't have to defend a lion, just let it out of its cage. Yeah. You're like, we aren't the ones that, that have to be the PR managers for the Bible. What we really right. need to do is just allow people to experience it. And I like what you said, experience it on its own terms. Right. So how do you do that? Well, that's a lot of it, I think, and a lot of what we try and do in the book. And what I encourage any believer in the conversation is just to help people recognize uh, where their perceptions of the Bible are coming from. And so that's a lot of this work was just trying to help people understand why they think the way they think about the Bible currently so that they can identify their preconceived notions and sort of begin to set those aside and come to the text fresh. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that's what I found. um, I found this was when I was at OU. um, I was in a fraternity, um, not the Christian fraternities, very secular fraternity. And uh, it was awesome. And I had a lot of conversations with guys, some of whom would grow up in the church and some of whom never went to church. And when I would kind of bring about this line of argumentation of what would it look like if you read the Bible and set aside everything you ever knew about it and read it fresh just for yourself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And it was a compelling idea because there is, the Bible is so much a part of our culture. I mean, just coming off of, you know, um, a few weeks ago, the Christmas season, and there's so much of the Bible's language and yeah. Christian culture that's inside of Christmas time. Um, even if you're not a Christian, we were a year ago. We were in New York City uh, in Christmas time, and we were at the ice skating rink there in Manhattan, and they're playing "Oh Holy Night" over the loudspeakers mm-hmm. in the center city Manhattan, and. You know, Christ is the Lord. Oh, here's name. I mean, it's yeah. just like singing all these Christian songs. And um, so to set all of that aside, I mean, to set aside, you know, um, like Donald Trump and the evangelical vote, to set aside like your view of Christianity from growing up and going to a, a fundamentalist Baptist church. I mean, just whatever it is and saying, let's just look at the text mm-hmm. for what it is and take it, let it rise or fall on its own merits um Mm -hmm. and sort of you can't you can't judge the text both for being uh untrue and immoral at the same time Hmm. and that's what i'm saying by the you have to enter into the conversation and accept the bible on its own terms like if you're going to read the bible read the bible like you would a story and say okay i'm Mm going to accept this as a story and then make a judgment on what i see on it and uh and then go from there so that's that's at least how i'd want to start the conversation with someone So one of the things I want to go back to here is when you have the opportunity to talk to somebody about faith, obviously sharing the gospel is great, but, but let's say they're not ready to accept the gospel yet. You've, you've, uh, maybe you've shared it with them or maybe you just know it's not, not time. 
one of the things I found in my own life, and I've seen my friends who are, are have a really good way about talking to people who are not Christians, is just invite them to begin reading the Bible with you. So you sit down, you know, over the course of a few weeks, you start reading the Bible together, and you allow the Bible, you allow the Holy Spirit to really do the heavy lifting, and you're fielding questions, you're talking, you're, you know, just reading and thinking together. Sometimes that seems like you're not doing enough, you know, and, and, and it's sometimes they're not even really open to reading or, or, or getting into the Bible itself yet. But let's, let's say you have somebody and they're willing to read the Bible with you. Um, I would consider that kind of pre-discipleship, you know, because they're not right. Christians yet, so it's really not discipleship, but but they're willing to engage with you and talk about things. I, I can think back to a lot of really good relationships and several people that came to know the Lord just from sitting down and reading together. Um, what's your experience with that? What advice would you give to somebody who maybe has a coworker, family member, and they're willing to do that mm-hmm. even if they're not willing to become a Christian yet? That's amazing. I think... First of all, I think what you said is really important, and one of the maybe the different a different goal that I would have than maybe some, which is, or at least I would have a different goal than I would used to have if I was having that conversation. Which is, if I'm talking to someone that is far from faith, far from God, if I can just get them to read in the Scripture, like you said with mm-hmm. that Spurgeon quote, I feel like okay, I've I haven't taken them into the end zone, but I've moved them five yards down the field, you right, know, and just kind of take that as a win rather than to feel like I got to throw a Hail Mary every time to try and yes. like score and that's it. Um, I think it's a, a win if we can do that pre-evangelism work. If someone is then willing to say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to sit down with you. I'm willing to read the Bible. You're not going to understand the Bible apart from Jesus. Mm-hmm. You're not, it's not going to make sense to you um, because if you just kind of zoom in and look really tightly on whatever Bible story you want to look at, um, it'd be great for someone to sit down and read First Samuel and learn about King David. And there's some great mm-hmm. stories in there. But if you don't understand that King David is ultimately pointing you to Jesus, then it's just kind of a good Sunday school story about morality. And it's no different from, right. from other moral stories like Aesop's fables. And yeah. so to be able to instead kind of zoom out and be able to show the whole Bible's about Jesus, I would start there to say, if you're going to understand anything You've got to get Jesus. And then yeah. after you get Jesus, everything else kind of in light of him points to him and everything after points back at him. Um, and so one of the four gospels uh, is where I would start in reading together uh, and taking it slow and just, you know, I mean, what you've probably done a hundred times of sitting down with someone and saying, hey, just write down your thoughts as you're reading through it. And then let's get together and yeah. you know, discuss some of your questions and things like that. But that to me is the best place to start because the way that I understand the Bible is that everything Jesus himself claims that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it's the scriptures that point to me that, right. um, on the road to Emmaus, I mean, he's constantly showing that the Bible, the old Testament or Hebrew Bible is pointing towards him. And then obviously the rest of the new Testament is pointing back at him talking about mm-hmm. in the light of his resurrection. Yeah, I, I, I just like breaking out of the kind of apologetics mold where it's like you've got to get every question answered and you've got to prove that God exists and then you've got to move to other things before somebody can get to the point where they just talk about their faith. And That's so good. And I just feel like in in when you're doing like relational evangelism, a lot of times what's really important is that you just get to a place as quickly as you can where you just begin to talk about the things that they actually care about. 
Hmm. You know, so That's I've really I've yet to meet someone, and I'm looking forward to this when the time happens. But I have yet to meet someone where I get to bring out my major apologetic ammunition and go over the arguments for the existence of God and solve the problem of evil, and you know, like all that. I've yet to meet somebody that wants to talk about that initially. Now, those questions may be underlying, you know, what's what's going on in their heart. But my experience in ministry, my experience just being a Christian, my experience mm-hmm. in my own heart is. Most of the time, people are hung up with something other than doctrine, uh-huh. other than apologetics, right. other than it's a lot of times understanding. They're either hung up because they're wounded, they um, don't know what God is really like, they don't know his character, they've been told something false about who Jesus is, and I just feel like it's such a an incredible opportunity to sit down and let the Bible set the tone for the conversations you're going to have. So you open up a gospel together, you're going to get to all the stuff that you want to talk about. So, you know, when, when a person encounters Jesus, it's, it's just amazing. Even non-Christians know that there's something about Jesus. When you start reading about it, you're like, this just is not a normal human being. And you begin to have these conversations about what he said and what he did and the claims that he made. And it's going to dictate that conversational path for you. And you're going to have better conversations probably than you could have drummed up on your own. Yeah. But I think I, I, I think sometimes there's a fear that maybe talking about Jesus or jumping into something like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or one of Paul's letters or even, you know, jumping into the book of Psalms together or something is almost like too much too soon. And I'm sure there's situations where that's the case, but it's been my experience that that might be the best thing you can do with somebody who really doesn't know what they believe. They right. they really don't even know um, why they're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. They just aren't. Right. They're just mad or they just don't want to talk about it or something like that. Sometimes that could be the best bridge in having those meaningful conversations. For sure. I mean, Jesus is so relatable. I mean, when you start reading him, I mean, he is God and certainly when he's performing the miraculous, but I mean, he's walking around like being a friend to people, like going to parties, turning water into wine, like having meals with people. I mean, he he is just a, a relatable guy. And so that's what I think in part my hope was, was that there's been a lot of good books and good thoughts um, recorded in terms of young adults and the church and young adults at Christianity. And I hadn't seen much or read much on young adults, millennials, Gen Z, and the Bible. And mm-hmm. just looking at what what do they think about the Bible? Because right now there is still a, in the same way that, you know, Jesus is, is thought of well and is popular, so is the same as true as about the Bible. So even though there's a a reflex sort of against organized religion and church and, you know, things like that. There's still an openness to the scripture. And so is there a way to leverage that to say, hey, we, I want to talk to someone about local church membership and things like that. And I want to talk to someone about, you know, Christianity and faith. But if I can at least get them started with the Bible, mm-hmm. um, then we may have something. My pastor told a story this last Sunday that kind of got at this idea that there was a guy at his old church who he asked, how'd you come to faith? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I was in a fraternity. Mm-hmm. I'm watching, um, I think it was the Super Bowl or the World Series. And there was a guy back in the, whenever the 70s, that had a rainbow wig and a John 316 <laughs> sign. And uh, and so he was, he'd go to every big sporting event, was there. And he's drinking with his fraternity brothers John 3.16 comes on and he says, hey, is it, what does that mean? I see this guy everywhere. Mm-hmm. And one guy says, I think it's in the Bible. 
open and someone says, well, who has a Bible here? And so yeah. a drunk frat guy goes and gets his Bible <laughs> because everyone wants to know what is John three sixteen, And he yeah. reads that passage. And this guy says that it was at that point that that after John three sixteen was read for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It, he could not escape that. Like that mm. was just like gnawing at him for weeks and months until finally he went to a church, went up to the pastor after the service. Can you imagine this? And oh said, my gosh. Would you explain to me John three sixteen? It's <laughs> <laughs> so, like the moment that you always hope for and like never comes. Yeah. You know? Right. But yeah. That is incredible. I think one of the things that, that that points to is we have to be comfortable with the Bible doing the work of God. Mm-hmm. I always think of the story that's told about Spurgeon where he goes into the agricultural hall in England and he's going to preach there that night. And so he decides he's going to warm up his voice, which is like a totally different era than here. Like instead of doing a mic check, he's going to test the acoustics of the room. And so he gets up on the stage and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they thought that the place was empty. And, uh, it turned out that there was a janitor up in the balcony of this place, cleaning the place, getting ready for the revival that night. And the guy hears it and he comes down and he asks Burgess, he says, what is it that you're talking about? He's like, how do I, how can I be saved? And you're like, surely that has to be made up. You're like, there's no way. No, people don't do that. You know, like that, that's just not what happened, but it happened. I think about, I mean, there's another time where he, his sermons were printed and it was, it, they would be reused on things like meat and that kind of thing. And there was this lady who bought a stick of butter and it was wrapped in newspaper and the newspaper happened to be a clip of part of one of Spurgeon's sermons and she read it and that enough was you know, sufficient to convict her and then she became a Christian. And it's like, this is so crazy. There's crazy. no way this could happen. But the Bible is pretty clear. It's the voice of God and the Holy Spirit that lead people to faith. And so the quicker that we can introduce them to that, the better. Like the quicker that we can actually let God speak to them in his own words, the better. And that requires some trust on our part to say, you mean like letting them actually read the Bible might be the the thing that brings them to faith? Yeah, it might be. Like that that could be it. Um, As opposed to whatever gospel presentation we could put together, which would undoubtedly be great. And maybe that is something that God uses as well. But, you know, there's a trust on our part that the voice of God, the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. So the first thing I think of when we talk about, you know, writing a book is that like writing a book is a huge deal, first of all. I mean, I've never written a book. I know a lot of people that think they could write a book. And there's a lot of people that start writing books. In fact, I read this joke one time. It's like, you know, most young Christian guys and girls like have 40,000 words stored somewhere to to bounce into action (laughs) when when the book contract comes. But it's like very few people actually make it happen. Mm. And talk to me a little bit about like, what was the process like of writing a book? I mean, you, you actually did it. What was it like to write it? Yeah. So first of all, the obviously the first thing is, do we have a unique concept, a unique contribution that's not being had? And so that was the the idea of millennials and Gen Z, kind of young adults engaging with the Bible um, specifically and not just Christianity or the church or whatever. So 
then uh, uh, my wife Lauren and I, um, I mean, obviously no one writes a book on their own. And so there was a ton that we were kind of leaning on both from, you know, pastors and writers and others that we had looked at a lot of research that we had been just inundated with. And then our friend Drew Griffin, who is our pastor in New York City, that we had been wrestling together with a lot of these concepts of millennials and the Bible as he's church planning among 20 and 30 somethings there in Center City, Manhattan, on the Upper East Side. And so as we began wrestling with those things together, um, that was, you know, we had the opportunity to write. And so um, that kind of team effort of writing was crucial uh, because, number one, we're all kind of sharing the load together. And two, for me, I'm an external processor, so that was crucial too. And as I'm thinking through things to be able to bounce it off uh, other people. And so, and not just them, but, you know, others as well. Like I'm asking you about uh, yeah. how to engage and read the Bible and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's a total team effort. That's not just yeah a, a romanticized vision of you sitting down and writing it all in one sitting at your laptop. Right? Well, that's what people think about is, yeah. is, you know, like you are the starving artist who all you have is you and your computer, but it's like life doesn't stop when you're writing a book. I mean, yeah. you're working, you're trying to find time to do it. And one of the cool things about this project, I think, is that you and Lauren wrote this book together. Yeah. And I think that brings, like, really, really great things, and I think it brings really, really tough things. Mm-hmm. What's, what's it like to write a book with your wife? Man, um, we had the benefit of working together before this, so we already understood that we work very differently. Mm-hmm. And so... In general, it was great because it is, like you said, we we wrote this on our free time. So this was um, nights and weekends. And just like our PhD program, it's a lot easier to do something nights and weekends when you're married, when your spouse is doing it with you, right? Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, even New Year's Eve, we, we made the decision, book deadline is coming up. We can't take time to go to a New Year's Eve party and yeah. there would have been tons that we could have gone to, right? <laughs> well, sure. I, lo- I saw Lauren's post and I loved it. I, was, she, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she was like, wild, you know, New Year's Eve is like a picture of like the computer and finishing the book deadline and like projects. And I mean, that's something I really respect about you guys is it takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of, you know, that grit that you have to have to see something through to the end. Yeah. Um, and especially when you're bringing different styles, different mm-hmm. voices. I mean, the mm-hmm. two of you are going about it differently. What was that like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so in the same way that whenever, if she was here with me and we were giving the interview, we sound different, not only in our voices and pitch, but word choice and things like that, pace. The same is true in our writing, mm-hmm. that we, we sound different or we read different when we're writing. And so throughout the book, you see that. You'll see... Um, us kind of say, you know, I, Michael, and give a story or a thought or whatever at times. And that's because of that. Um, and so it, I hope that that, and mixed with, again, Drew helping us get that first draft, that you, those three kind of voices harmonize together well, where we're able to um, hit different points and kind of speak in such a way that we can connect with a broad um, audience of people, hopefully both male and female um, readers as well. Uh, as well, we we identified that we know we're outliers, and that most of our generation isn't married, and so yeah. uh, and we've been married almost a decade now, right? You know? So we uh, hopefully it it communicates well, but that was part of what we wanted to do was to draw upon both of our experiences and our expertise to be able to say um, argue for the validity of the scripture, and as we were doing that, uh, that writing process was uh, a it was a lot of sharpening one another's thinking and kind of pushing back on why would you say it this way and not that way, 
um, and catching things that the other wouldn't catch of mistakes or mm-hmm. whatever uh, in the manuscript. So I, I can't imagine not writing it now with Lauren because she made my writing so much better. Yeah, and I kind of love that you guys decided not to just write it with one singular voice through the whole thing, mm. but that you know you have two similar, obviously, but different perspectives almost engaging as you write the book. I mean, I hope that the outcome of that is it's more textured, it has more depth, it engages more people than it would have if either one of you wrote it or if you wrote it together with a singular voice. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always loved, and I, and I think Jonathan Pennington shared this with me, and I don't remember when this was. It was in one of those intro classes that, that you take, or um, if it was... It would have been before his new podcast, which I love, the Cars and Theologians thing. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I remember him saying that every project kind of has a life cycle. And the life cycle is you start out and you have this great idea and you're like, this is awesome. I am awesome. You know, this is so much fun. And you get into it a little ways and the newness wears off and you're like, I don't know about mm-hmm. this. And this is harder than I thought it was. And at some point you turn the corner and you kind of start going downhill to uh, this is horrible. This is awful. And then he's like, the last stage is you pivot. And instead of saying this is awful, you start thinking, I am awful. I am not sufficient for this. I can't do this. (laughs) It's like, that's when you know you've entered kind of like the dark night of every project. And I feel like whether it's writing a book or like changing a tire or, you know, like fitness goals, like whatever it is, all projects kind of have a life cycle like Mm -hmm. that. And then you finally begin to come out of that and, and, and you have this sense of accomplishment. But in the middle for a while, when you're, you're too far in to quit and Mm -hmm. save face, and you're not close enough to the end to feel like you're rounding the last corner towards the finish line. Give me like the high and the low of the of the project. Man, that that is exactly what happened. Like that, you know, dip to a T. So the high point was when we first started. Like mm-hmm. when we recognized that, hey, we have a unique concept with millennials engaging with the Bible, and we have a publisher that like gets what we're trying to do that is behind us on this vision and wants us to help equip us to run it was like this this book is going to change the world you know like mm-hmm. this is going to be a great book and um and then you start to write it and you realize that you know there's there's some chapters that are harder to come about and like you said you just have to have sometimes some grit of man this there, there's i can point to all of the errors like all of the things not errors but uh places that i'm not satisfied with the book right and, uh you know, I heard it's kind of. I've heard a movie producer say, "You're never finished with a movie. You just give up on it." Yeah, and that's what it sort of feels like with the book. Like you're never truly done writing it. You just have to say, "I gotta stop tinkering with it and do other things." Yeah, and so for me, the the in the middle of writing that down that lowest point hit, and uh, it was realizing that the book was not only a f- reflection of me, but that it was going to be around forever. Yeah. That, that I couldn't just go back in and kind of delete the blog post years later that I was embarrassed about. Uh, but this was going to be on people's bookshelves, even if it's just a dozen people forever. And like they, they would be, I will be measured by what I say in this book. And so then you're going, man, do I at 30, 31, like, am I confident in what I'm writing in this book that I'm ready to have it be kind of plastered and connected to me for all time. And, uh, and especially when I started looking around at other people that I know that man mm. are so much smarter, that are so much more capable of writing this book than I was. Uh, you get caught in that imposter trap, that, that comparison syndrome of going, I'm not worthy to do this. And, uh, ultimately you just have to, 
I, I had to just give it to the Lord and say, God, you've, you've called me to this. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, there's a mix of my motives. I know that some of it I'm sure is pure that wants you to be glorified and some of it that is sinful that wants myself to be glorified. And would you just give me clean hands and pure heart and for best you can use it or not use it for your glory and trust him with the work that you've done that he can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even if it's our suffering of knowing that we, uh, we didn't accomplish or didn't, uh, write a book as as great as what we set out to write. So as you are wrapping up this project um, and, you know, this thing's going to come out in a few months, what are the big takeaways that you've had personally or that you kind of want people to have with the book? Hmm. Let me think about that a second. That's a good question. I think the there are several takeaways I want. I mean, first of all, like I mentioned, the the biggest takeaway for me is that this book is about Jesus. I mean, that mm-hmm. chiefly that if you if if nothing else was taken away from from the book or from my ministry, I would want people to see and savor Jesus Christ as the great aim of the book. And then secondly, and, and really, I think I've mentioned this, I think Lauren and I write this in the book that our goal is that this book would inspire you to read the book. And that mm-hmm. um, ultimately I hope that this creates an appetite for reading the Bible um, to a generation that maybe, maybe has interest in the Bible, that it sort of has a certain mystique uh, but sort of a, a, a hesitancy of how how much is this worth my time because it is difficult to read. And so, um, and then thirdly, and maybe kind of again, going back to, I mean, we, we wrote this hopefully for those who are open to the Bible, but aren't currently regularly reading the Bible, um, understanding that there is a small, very loud percentage of the population that's closed to the Bible mm-hmm. um, and maybe a pretty silent portion of the our generation that is regularly reading the Bible. And I think both for our generation, the part of our generation that is reading the Bible, and for parents or pastors of millennials or Gen Zers that struggle with that kind of generational language gap of how do I talk to my young adult son, daughter, you know, person at my church about the reading the Bible and about faith, I, I hope that this kind of helps give a a blueprint of of what of how they can begin to engage that conversation of um, either reading this book together or, or just reading it themselves to kind of change their tone so that we're not going straight to there are some great apologetic arguments mm-hmm. um, but what I hope what we were trying to do I think in the book was to really grab at the heart of um, kind of bypassing the mind the logical arguments which are important and we want to deal with. And going straight for the heart to say, um, the Bible cares about things you care about. Um, people care about the Bible. People, even that are non-Christians, we talk about. Some of the non-Christians that talk about the importance of the Bible and the way the Bible has impacted the world and things like that. And so if you're going to be a thinking person, you can't sort of escape the Bible's impact. And so um, what we just want to do is kind of help to reset the table and allow you to come and eat from the word of God, mm-hmm. uh, without that baggage. And so that's my hope. But ultimately the, 
I would much rather the book fail or the project fail or whatever and people actually get to the Bible. That's the the great aim or the great hope for Mm -hmm. for the book. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.